0: Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 10th of February. Today, the chief executive of the City of London's regulator quits, leaving the future of the Financial Services Authority in the balance.
1: If you think he's presided over, you know, the, the disaster that led to the nationalisation of Northern Rock, he was there, he helped bail out the banks.
0: You'll hear from some young soldiers preparing for their first visit to Afghanistan.
2: It's good quality training that's given, uh, so I'm not really too bothered about the being this age and going out, to be honest.
0: How the National Trust plans to shake off its traditional fusty paternalistic image. Of course they're not gonna kind of trash
3: the collections. I mean they have priceless collections. But the kind of bottom line is if there's something that you're not allowed to touch, then we will say clearly
0: why, and we will show you something that you really can touch. There's more damage to Toyota's international reputation as it recalls almost half a million cars because of a safety glitch. And concerns about the diets of teenage girls as a study is published on what Britain eats.
1: Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk
0: First our top story. Hector Sants resigned yesterday as boss of the Financial Services Authority, which the Conservatives say they'll disband if they win the election. Our deputy city editor, Jill Trainor says Sands' departure leaves the city regulator in chaos.
1: Well, the FSA will be very keen to make clear that this is business as usual. He's not going for six months, so he won't be going until July. Um, he'd have been there three years by then, so let's not panic. In reality, Hector Sands was a fantastic figurehead for the Financial Services Authority, but he's been the public face of the regulator through all those extraordinary period we've been through in the last two and a half years if you think he's presided over you know the the disaster that led to the nationalization of northern rock he was there he helped bail out the banks and so it is a very difficult situation for the fsa to find themselves in because whatever else you may think about him he has been a very good leader who's instigated dramatic change
0: and does it mean that we can expect lord turner to step down soon as well from his role as uh, chairman of the fsa
1: Oh, I would. How I would love to know what's going on in Lord Turner's mind right now. I mean, he—he—you he, have to remember that Lord Turner arrived uh, in October 2008, just as the banking crisis was really at its peak. You would normally expect one of these people to stay three, four years in that sort of role. What's difficult to know is how Lord Turner would feel about presiding over an organisation that's about to be disbanded. Of course we are now making the leap of faith that the Conservatives win the next election but there is speculation in the city that now maybe we should all be watching to see what Turner does next. A man with extraordinary intellect, a fantastic ability to come out with the perfect soundbite and I don't know his political leaning but They used to call him Red Adair, what can I say?
0: (laughs) Now, how does the city regard the Tories' plans to disband the Financial Services Authority?
1: I would say definitely mixed, which is, I know, not the most precise answer you would want me to give. But the reality is that the Financial Services Authority, like it or loathe it, had been overseeing this extraordinary change. And many people had been concerned that if you start talking about disbanding the FSA in the middle of a massive change programme, that what you end up doing is undermining the regulator what the Tories want to do is essentially tear up the system of regulation that Gordon Brown thrust upon the city in 1997 when he was Chancellor. And, you know, senior Tories were pointing out, you know, at least they are trying to, to open a debate about the future of regulation, whereas Gordon Brown thrust it upon the city. And more broadly, how does the city regard George Osborne? It sounds very corny to say that people are concerned about the fact that he's only 38. The reality is, the last person who entered number 11 at the age of 38 was 125 years ago. Most chancellors have lots of grey hair, um, quite a lot of experience under their belt, are extraordinarily accomplished politicians and have often done something else. So George has got that against him already in, in, in that particular, the, the fact that he is 38. But he's also made tricky announcements you know his his decision to talk about capping city bonuses at 2000 pounds actually caused laughter in the city rather than tears so he he hasn't entirely convinced the world that he's got the best policies that are be- that, that are well thought through that's not to say that he doesn't have supporters
0: Jill Trina and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk/business also on the guardian's website
3: I'm Andrew Dixon, I'm the arts editor of Guardian.co.uk. On the site today, uh, we will have the verdict on the Deutsche Börse Photography Prize by our art critic Adrian Searle. Theatre Masterpiece Brook is in London, and he's taking us behind the scenes of his new play, and The Barbican. And Ben Walters will be asking whether Alan Partridge's the musical is really such a good idea. That's all on Guardian.co.uk forward slash culture.
0: Operation Moshtarakis is a major push against the Taliban in central Helmand, involving 30,000 international troops. Gordon Brown said yesterday it represented an important step in handing over control to the Afghans. The Guardian's Stephen Morris met some British soldiers getting ready to go to Afghanistan for the first time. They're members of the 4th Mechanised Brigade, 6,350 men and women currently undergoing their final training on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire.
2: Uh, Lance Corporal Matthew Ellis. Uh, I'm from 150 Provost Company in Katrick, uh, part of One Royal Military Police.
4: And you'll be going over there April, isn't it, I think, you're out there?
2: Yeah, sometime in the beginning of April, I think, yeah.
4: Looking forward to it?
2: I think uh, this is obviously what I joined the army for, uh, to go on tour, and I think the role that we're doing is uh, beneficial to the Afghan people, so I think, it's, yeah, to do, to do our bit for that is rewarding, I think, so... Tell me
4: about your role, what are you going to be doing?
2: Um, we're going out there in a mentoring role uh, for the Afghan National Police, um, just to get them up to a place where they can take. O- they, 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 they can, we can eventually hand over the country to them, with the confidence that they'll be able to do their job correctly.
4: So. What age are you, if you don't mind me asking?
2: Yeah, I'm twenty-one.
4: So it's so a young age be doing that sort of work, don't, don't you think?
2: Um, well, if they allow eighteen-year-olds on the front line as infantry soldiers, uh, I believe that um, the training does kick in regardless of age. Um, it's good quality training that's given uh, so I'm not really too bothered about the about being this age and going out to be honest. Are you nervous about it? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's my first tour um, and uh, I think anyone who wasn't nervous would be lying to be honest uh, but I think that they'll help in the end. Nerves uh, make you understand how serious the situation is and respond to the training better
5: and
4: be more prepared for
5: it. Guardsman Daniel Kelly from the Scots Guards 1st Battalion
4: so tell me you what your job's going to be out
5: there uh, it's Pomlet we're going to be mentoring the ANP by like partnering the ANP and ANA uh, Just the
4: National Army Yeah, National Af- Police Force A- A-
5: Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police Force yeah uh, it's just teaching them like things like using VALUMS how to search for IEDs um, the RMPs are st- like teaching them how to detain people and things, just so when we leave, they can keep the Taliban like, like aware, so it can be a safe haven for them. Really, so got a lot of training to do for that. But. So, you looking
4: forward to that? <coughs> you looking forward to that?
5: Uh yeah, I can't wait to go. I, th- I think I think it'll be good to get out and teach them things that we know, and then hopefully get all of our lads out and then probably end up going somewhere else. But a scary
4: place to be at the
5: moment. Oh, is, that, yeah. is that
4: how you feel? I don't know. How does a soldier feel about
5: it? If you've, if you've done a lot of training, you know, you just, after a while you just want to get out there and you want to get your job done and come back safe and then hopefully don't have to go back. So, hopefully it'll be just a one-two, a wonder, and then that's just a way back and then probably not go again. What, what age are you? How old are you? I'm uh, I'm 22. I've been in been in the army for two years, done a year of training for Afghan, so I'm ready. Hey, part of Andrew McKinley, in the Scots Guards,
4: and you're going out in April as well. Yeah,
5: yeah. What,
4: what's your job going to be there?
6: I'm a GPMG gunner in the PMT section. What does that um, mean? I carry the machine gun for um, fire support if anything kicks off and it's needed.
4: So you're looking forward to that?
6: Ah, it should should be an experience. Um, not a lot of people get to do it, so something different.
4: How long have you been in the army?
6: Uh, two and a half years now. Um, that's your first? Yeah, it's my first tour. I, first tour. I spent a lot of time in training. So I went to um, Foundation College first, and then I went on to ITC.
4: And what about the culture? Have you learnt about that, Afghan culture?
6: I, um, we've been doing a lot of this training. Um, we had a cultural awareness brief uh, yesterday, and um, we've been working with uh, the Gurkhas, who have been playing the Afghan National Police, and um, they've been telling us a lot. And um, We've been speaking to the guys that's been out there. They've been telling us a lot, like what's it like, what's it like that.
4: And you're the piper as well. Do you I, take your bagpipes with you? It
6: uh, should be aye, aye. Um, so, what do you reckon they'll make it there? I don't know. Um, we'll see. Probably won't like them, but should see.
0: Stephen Morris reporting. The National Trust pedals comfy nostalgia and nurtures a perception that the past was a better place. That was what Tim Smith, creator of the Eden Project, said about it. Well, the National Trust boasts 3.8 million members, so perhaps it shouldn't worry. But it's launching a new strategy today, partly in response to such accusations. As G2's John Henley explains,
3: well, it's called going local, and it's basically a completely new direction, really, for the trust. Or some would say a, a reversion to the to, to its to the trust's origins. It was founded, you know, well over a hundred years ago now by a woman called Octavia Hill, the National Trust. And the idea then was, um, she was sort of a very kind of um, quite a radical kind of Christian socialist, and her idea was, you know, we've got to create what she called open air living rooms for. The the urban poor basically so it was very much about using land and countryside people's enjoyment thereof but what the trust feels it has become and what a lot of people criticize it for is kind of a sort of a middle-class middle-aged playground really it's kind of cream teas and blue rinses and lovely gardens and it's a I'm familiar
0: a, accusation leveled at the national it's a, it's trust, a very it?
3: familiar accusation it's this, this whole kind of you know look, don't touch side of things. And people associate the National Trust now much more with the, the built properties than they do with the, the, the sort of the countryside and coast and, and, and what have you. And I think we're all familiar with that. You know, it's kind of identikit restaurants and gift shops that, that you know, that you can buy the same kind of products, National Trust products in any house in the country. In fact, you could walk into almost any National Trust property in the country and feel that you were in any national trust property anywhere in the country really um and so going local is kind of a an attempt to rectify that really and to um really kind of engage with local communities and and make you know local residents proud that they've got um, a, a, a National Trust property in them it's, and really allow them to use it. And they've got How some. How
0: might that actually work in practice? Well, they've
3: got some quite radical ideas. I mean, the testbed for it all is this place called Seaton Delaval, which they bought uh, or acquired very late last year, just before Christmas. It's a magnificent Vanborough villa, I suppose, uh, 18th century, but they're supposed to be the finest example of English Baroque architecture in the country. And usually what the National Trust would have done in those kind of circumstances would well, shut the whole thing up for 18 months or so give it the full national trust revamp you know install the tea rooms and the guest shop (laughs) cordon off the collections behind kind of you know red silk silk uh, cords and stuff like this and instead what they're doing basically as one of the People there told me is essentially it's going to become a kind of you know a gigantic village hall that just happens to have been designed by an 18th century master architect. You know, so there's going to be you know the the, the catering isn't going to be in a standard National Trust restaurant. It's going to be by the woman who runs the fish and chip shop down the road. Uh, the local school kids are going to be taking over the the walled garden for and, be, and growing vegetables there. The uh, the primary school is putting on its plays and. Uh, And and storytelling sessions and what have you in the in the cellars and in the stables. Um, You know, the Cub Scouts are going to be camping in the grounds. And it really, you know, it's actually quite a radical departure. For the trust, and, and how,
0: how is that going to go down with the sort of traditional wing of the national trust? Well,
3: that's that. I suppose is the sixty four thousand dollars question. They they they're quite convinced. I mean, I've speak, spoken to a lot of, of very enthusiastic national trust people over the course of the past fortnight also so, who who feel say that the whole thing really has has liberated them, and the idea of of devolving responsibility down to kind of local property managers and really allowing them to kind of engage with with local communities and and allow them in and use them, you know, really as they see fit. They're really excited about it. But there are, without a doubt, you know, old school National Trust people who will find all this rather upsetting. I think, you know, what they're very careful to say is that they're going to, of course, they're not going to kind of trash the collections. I mean, they have priceless collections. And, And there will be stuff that people still won't be allowed to touch. But, The kind of bottom line is, if there's something that you're not allowed to touch, then we will say clearly why,
0: and we will show you something that you really can touch. John Henley. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Toyota, the world's biggest car maker, has recalled almost half a million hybrid cars over concerns about their brakes. Around 8,500 British Prius owners are affected. It's the latest in a series of safety scares to hit Toyota. Justin McCurry is in Tokyo for The Guardian.
7: What led them to this decision was a series of complaints, uh, not in the UK, but uh, in Japan and in the United States... By drivers who said that uh, when they'd been driving their their Prius cars, they'd uh, occasionally experience a loss of brake power when uh, travelling at slow speeds, particularly on icy or bumpy roads. So obviously that uh, comes very soon after Toyota recalled more than eight million cars around the world for uh, the opposite problem, if you like, a problem connected to uh, acceleration. So it was uh, you know fear of. Yet more damage to the Toyota brand and also the possibility of uh, yet more accidents. In fact, there have been four reported accidents connected with this braking problem that that uh, led Toyota to announce this global recall of, I think, more than 400,000 uh, cars across the world.
0: And how damaging is it to Toyota?
7: Well, massively. I mean, if it well, if things weren't bad enough already with the recall of, of other models in the United States, uh, Europe and China... The the whole recall safety issue has now come back to Toyota's home turf. The the, the, the recall announced today affects cars made and sold and driven in Japan as well as overseas. So quite apart from having to put up with or having to deal with criticism of Toyota's uh, safety record in the United States and elsewhere, Toyota is now going to have to face the music from its sort of hitherto very loyal consumers on home turf in Japan. And it's not as if this is a particularly good time for the car industry
0: in general, is it?
7: No, well, the car industry has shown signs of picking up in recent months. That's uh, largely due to a pickup in demand in China and also the introduction of these government incentives to encourage drivers to trade in their old cars for new hybrid models, including, of course, the the, the, the Toyota models that have been part of this recall announced. But um, certainly for Toyota, it's it's going to be a bleak few months ahead. It had um, released really some fairly encouraging sales results and uh, f- full year estimates last week. but of course it's had to offset all of that with uh, an estimated two billion dollars in additional costs connected to the recall. so yes for for Nissan, for Honda, and indeed for some of the American companies who've struggled in over the last year who appear to be benefiting from Toyota's problems, um things are beginning to look up, but for Toyota, it's going to be a pretty pretty awful few months ahead, I imagine.
0: And uh, in Japan is there a sort of special place uh for of, in the Japanese hearts for Toyota given its dominance of the world's car market?
7: Yes there is and I think that's why Toyota's going to have to handle this latest recall very carefully particularly at home. I mean in recent weeks there's sort of there's been a a sense that it, although nobody really wanted to see uh Toyota being hauled over the coals like this in uh, particularly in the foreign media there was a sense that um this was something that, that was affecting drivers in other countries and that um you know there were even people who were saying that the accelerators that are at the center of the recent recall were all um manufactured in the US and that's really where the the, the problem lies but um you know now that uh, this whole recall issue is, has spread to Japan it's going to be very interesting in the coming days and weeks to see how the Toyota PR machine, which has performed pretty abysmally up until now, deals with sort of growing anxiety about Toyota cars uh, back in Japan. And yes, it does have a very special place at the heart, not just of the Japanese car industry, but at, at the heart of J- Japanese manufacturing. And you know, it's it's easy to to forget, uh, given the current turmoil, that. Two years ago, Toyota overtook General Motors as the biggest uh, car company in the world in terms of sales. And uh, just two years ago, I mean, last year it re- recorded its first ever annual loss in, it, loss in its history. But uh, in the years up until then, it was looking at record profit. So this is definitely going to be a shock to the system. Toyota has fallen a long way in a very short time. Justin
0: McCurry in Tokyo. Teenage girls are being targeted through social media networks like Facebook in a drive to improve their diets. New government research shows that the food they eat is more unhealthy than other people. Rebecca Smithers is our consumer affairs correspondent.
8: Well, there's a very worrying trend, which is that uh, teenage girls are, first of all, not eating enough, and when they are actually eating, they're eating all the wrong things. So they're eating stuff that's high in sugar, salt and fat, so lots of chocolate, processed food, confectionery. Importantly, they're not eating foods that have got important nutrients in them, which can going to help them grow. So this, so this particular age group, basically teenage girls aged between 11 and eight, 18, have been singled out as the as this kind of sector of the population that have the worst diet, which um, is quite astounding, really.
0: Why teenage girls?
8: I think there are issues around body image, girls being very, very self-conscious about what they look like, how much they weigh, and I think they think they can get away with not eating anything at all. Um, there's issues also around the kind of, you know, um, de- a sort of in- attempts to become more in- independent when they're leaving school and uh, not you know, not, not sort of eating what's, what's kind of snacked at the family table. But um, it's interesting that, the, that, that boys don't seem to be doing this as, as much as girls are.
0: And what about school meals? What, what effect does that have? Because I suppose teenagers, uh, fewer teenagers eat school meals than pre- than, than primary school age that's kids. right
8: they, they do and in fact in the last couple of years we've had some very strict nutritional guidelines introduced for all, all school meals so you think that would be a good thing but as you rightly point out I mean generally speaking a large proportion of primary school kids will, will eat school meals when they go to secondary school again there are issues ar- around wanting to be uh, much more independent taking in packed lunches although there's evidence that if they do take a healthy packed lunch in, they might well chuck it away and, and just buy a bag of chips at lunchtime anyway
0: now this is from a- a thing called the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. What is this um, survey? Well,
8: it does sound terribly grand. In fact, it's 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 a big piece of research that's produced from the, the, the government's food watchdog, the Food Standards Agency. Although the Department of Health have had a big input into it as well. They're claiming it's the biggest survey of national diets, what we're all eating for about ten years. But uh, they are pointing out that this is the first of what they call a national rolling programme. So in the first year, it's a sample of only a thousand people, which which really, when you look when you look. At bigger surveys it's not a huge number but they're going to add to it every single year so it'll build up and build up so although at the moment we can make some comparisons with with 10 years ago but nothing so sort of too meaningful what's interesting about it is that all the participants it's not just a matter of just answering a few questions they've had to complete detailed food diaries describing everything they've eaten they've had to be weighed they've had the exercise monitored um, they've even given blood and urine samples although um, they haven't analyzed those yet so it's um It's quite serious stuff in terms of, you know, a long-term project.
0: And can we glean any information about the effectiveness of government healthy eating programmes?
8: In in terms of the the guidelines on healthy eating, they want us to be eating uh, at least five pieces of fruit or vegetable every single day. And the worrying thing is that that two-thirds of us are are not even doing that. And, you know, the Department of Health has poured millions of pounds into huge advertising campaigns. There's a, a big scheme called Change for Life, which is really about encouraging us to, to eat, eat much more healthily. And these messages are supposed to be you know, hitting us from you know the sides of buses as well as on television and radio. But it does seem as if they've got quite a long way to go in terms of get, getting that message over. Although I think they've conceded today that, uh, yes, um, still quite a challenge to get us all to eat what we should be eating.
0: Phil Maynard and Tim Mayby with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.